0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bauerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. The more
1: knowledgeable a patient is, the better care they will receive, regardless of what physicians they're seeing, because you're able to communicate what you're dealing with, you're able to understand different medical terminology, especially if you're maybe working with providers who maybe aren't experts on EDS, but are willing to listen. It helps you articulate a lot of the things that you might experience as a patient. And it also provides a lot of insight into things that you can do yourself, that you don't necessarily need a physician to prescribe something or to do certain testing, but things that you can take from this article and say, "Okay, I'm going to try to start applying these things to my life.
2: Welcome back to the Bendy Bodies podcast, bringing you state of the art information to help you improve your well being, enhance your performance, and optimize career longevity. This is co host Jennifer Milner, a former professional ballet and Broadway dancer who struggled for years with hypermobility related problems. Now, I train dancers to ensure the next generation of hypermobile artists are better equipped to work to their fullest potential.
0: I'm Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. I started Bendy Bodies to provide accessible information about joint hypermobility. Combining my medical education and personal experiences enables me to treat and coach patients and clients to optimize their quality of life. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice.
2: Our guests today are Dr. Courtney Gensimer, a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Regenerative Medicine and Cell Biology, Department of Neurosurgery at Medical University of South Carolina. And Victoria Daler, researcher and student, Department of Regenerative Medicine and Cell Biology at Medical University of South Carolina and post-baccalaureate pre-medical department, School of General Studies at Columbia University. Unfortunately, co-author Dr. Norris was not able to join us today, but we will definitely be speaking with him in a future episode. So hello, Dr. Gensimer and Victoria, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. We are really glad that you are here. Now, also... Um, I've introduced Dr. Gensimer and Victoria, but I should also say that we have another guest today, and that is our own Dr. Linda Bluestein. She is also a co-author on the paper, so she is going to be chiming in as one of the guests. Um, (laughs) We are here today to discuss a recently released two-part series of journal articles that you all wrote together, along with Dr. Norris, entitled Hope for Hypermobility. So that's what we're going to dig into. Courtney, can you share how this paper came about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, last summer, we had our uh, HEDS intern program in the Norris Lab. So this is an intern program for people with EDS to actually come into the lab and study it, be a part of research discoveries, um, with the ultimate goal of helping further their career, whether it's research or graduate school, medical school, something like that. And as part of our intern program, we have external people come and visit, meet our interns. Um, These are people who are experts in the EDS field. And so last summer, Victoria was one of our interns and Dr. Bluestein was one of our guests who came to visit. And while she was here in Charleston, we were talking about a lot of different things. We even did a live stream together, but she mentioned that she was going to be working on this paper. And wanted to see if it's something that I would be interested in. She had read papers that I had written before um, and thought it would be a good opportunity for us to kind of work together, um, merge her awesome clinical ideas with some of um, my interest in, you know, writing and science communication and things like that. And she said, you know, if you have an intern also who might be interested, I think this would be a great opportunity to get them involved. Um, And Victoria immediately stuck out to me. And so I thought I'm going to ask Victoria if she might be interested. I had no idea what she would say. Obviously, (laughs) everyone ended up saying yes. Um, But it just kind of happened like in the moment that day. And then um, the three of us started working on this together. And it's been a really cool collaboration, just having us in all different places all over the country, um, at different universities and practices and all
2: different things, being able to work together on something. And did you have a um, a main idea that you wanted to dig into for this article series, or did you just wait to see what direction it went? How did that go? So we knew it was going to be focused
1: on um, pain and pain management, um, being in a, a pain journal um, and with Dr. Bluestein's background in anesthesiology, but we didn't know exactly what it would include. And so there was a lot of brainstorming initially. I think we had a lot of different ideas. We talked about case studies. We talked about um, sort of different... Topics and comorbidities we wanted to cover. But something that I think that was really cool and that um, Dr. Bluestein really pushed for was making sure it was encompassing to sort of all hypermobile conditions um, or all symptomatic joint hypermobility. And so that's why we use the term symptomatic joint hypermobility rather than specifically HEDS or HSD or, um, you know, just EDS in general, so that it really encompasses anyone dealing with joint hypermobility that is symptomatic, regardless of what their diagnosis is, or if they even have a diagnosis.
2: Well, that's great that you wanted to start, um, that you started big, threw all the ideas into the pot, (laughs) and then sort of started winnowing it down, but still kept this overall umbrella of wanting to include as many different subcategories as you could, which is really helpful because as you said, whether they have a diagnosis or not, um, this can definitely apply for them. Victoria, what surprised you most about writing this article?
3: A great question. I I was learning a lot along the way in my research and reading other papers published about the topics that we covered. Um, I think the biggest thing I was surprised about in writing it was the effectiveness of patient education Being a patient and hoping to help educate people, it's good to see where they cross over and just the proof and the evidence behind it to back the idea. It's a simple idea, but knowing more about your condition and options for you can help learn how to cope and kind of find peace of mind, which that has definitely affected my physical condition whenever I feel well mentally. Um, I think specifically reading about the placebo and nocebo effect, I think everyone has heard about placebo, but nocebo was not a term I was familiar with. So it was the either the prior positive or negative perception of your treatment, uh, like medical treatment specifically, and having a positive view of your medical treatment prior to it can really impact the effect of the treatment plan. And along with that, also having a positive relationship with your physician can has been proven to improve and enhance your condition and symptoms of illness, which as someone who's hoping to be a physician one day, I'm trying to incorporate that mindset as soon as possible and see it in real time. Yeah, that was what surprised me. I'm going to add one more thing is that Linda informed me that leftover food has higher histamine <laughs> levels, and I had no idea. And I, I think about that every day now.
2: <laughs> the small things that you learn that aren't necessarily what you set out to uncover, right? But that um, that you learn that kind of stick with you. That's the joy of working in a group. Um, so coming to you, Dr. Bluestein, you specifically used the term symptomatic joint hypermobility in this article. And Dr. Gensimer referred to that a little bit earlier. Um, can you explain why you you guys settled on that and and what was how that informed how you wrote the articles?
0: We we really want, as as Dr. Gensimer said, we really wanted to be as inclusive as possible. And there are so many people who feel like there's no hope. So we also spent a lot of time really thinking about. The, the title of this article and brainstorming ideas. And we, we met multiple times over Zoom, and of course, had multiple email threads going at different times. And I think that um, the big theme was that for anyone in the spectrum, whatever your diagnosis is, there is hope and there's usually something that can be done. And oftentimes, you don't even need a medical professional to help you with that, but there's something that can be done to help improve your quality of life. So the title of the article, Hope for Hypermobility, was very specifically chosen, and we wanted to include everyone, whether they have a diagnosis or not, everyone who has symptomatic joint hypermobility or a condition related to that. We wanted to help them, give them some ideas and give them some tools to help their functional capacity be the best that it can possibly be.
2: That's fantastic. And again, having that larger umbrella so that as many people as possible can be reached because as we know, when people are struggling with hypermobility disorders, whether it's either danlos syndrome or, uh, HSD or Marfan or whatever it is, they may not have all the dots connected for them because they may not have a diagnosis. They may, um, have one thing and the article that they're reading is talking about another thing. So they may not feel like it applies to them or the medical professionals working with them may not feel that it applies to them. So I think that is super helpful for uh, for a lot of people to have that broad umbrella. Um, Courtney, why should people read this article?
1: Um, I think there's several reasons. There's the the patient community reading it is different than the reasons why I think it's important for the medical community to read it. Um, I think for physicians and healthcare providers, it's really important because there tends to be this connotation of like, don't diagnose EDS or it doesn't matter if someone has it because there's no treatment and there's nothing you can do. Um, And I think that kind of goes along with the title of hope for hypermobility, even if there's not, you know, an FDA approved magic treatment um, or Um, therapeutics that have been designed for EDS, which hopefully there will be in the future. But even if we don't have those things right now, it can be managed. And I think we need to change that mindset in healthcare. I think it's going to improve the quality of life um, for a lot of patients. It's also going to uh, potentially shorten those delays in diagnosis or the misdiagnosis um, that might go on because it's viewed as something that doesn't matter if you diagnose it. Um, so I think it has the ability to just sort of impact how it's viewed. Um, and instead of viewed as something that's either benign, which it's clearly not. And we talk a lot about the comorbidities and symptoms that occur. Um, but also that it shouldn't be diagnosed because there's no point in knowing if you can't treat it. And we also talk about ways to manage it, which show that that isn't true. Um, but from a patient perspective, I think I've always kind of had the mindset of the more knowledgeable a patient is, the better care they will receive, regardless of what physicians they're seeing, because you're able to communicate what you're dealing with. You're able to understand different medical terminology, especially if you're maybe working with providers who maybe aren't experts on EDS, but are willing to listen. It helps you articulate a lot of the things that you might experience as a patient. And it also provides a lot of insight into things that you can do yourself, um, that you don't necessarily need a physician to uh, prescribe something or to do certain testing, but things that you can take from this article and say, okay, I'm going to try to start applying these things to my life or even, okay, I'm going to go try to find a knowledgeable physical therapist now because I read this article, those types of things.
2: So this is a great article for both uh, medical professions and the people adjacent to that, right? Um, like, trainers, you know, people that are feeding into the care of someone, but then also for uh, people themselves who are suffering with joint hypermobility syndromes of some kind, some sort of symptomatic joint hypermobility. Um, That's great because that means we're reaching a lot of people with it. Um, So I want to move on to since we have started talking about symptomatic joint hypermobility, I want to fill that out a little bit more. Um, I want to start with you, Victoria. Can you share three things that you want people to know about symptomatic joint hypermobility?
3: Yeah, I I wish I could cover them all, but um, (laughs) um, um, I think top three would be that it looks different on everyone. I can I come from a dance background and. I heard about hyperextended knees and how they were both sought after for their beautiful lines, but also problematic. And I I looked down at my knees and my knees barely straighten, but yet almost every other joint in my body is hypermobile. So I thought, oh, that's not me. I don't have hypermobile knees. Um, but I, I later found out that yes, uh, your shoulders, elbows, wrists, jaw, and also be hypermobile, and it it's going to look different on everybody, depending on the joint and many other factors. So that was that's just one example, but I think that's one thing is it can look different. Um, I I remember seeing a post on Instagram actually. I think it was the the Cirque Physio. Uh, they said ignoring your hyperextension won't make it go away and (laughs) (laughs) that really has stuck with me I feel like uh, with all my friends in dance I'm like just you know you need to if you have this it's important that you assess it have it assessed you handle it you know be aware of it There are ways to prevent further injury it can be more systemic you know i think it's just it's it's something to to address worth addressing finding out if there's something there or not Um, and so i think i think that little quote on instagram has really stuck with me that it is worth it you have to address it (laughs) i say with kindness um (laughs) Yeah, I think the other thing is that it's unpredictable I think for people, you know, who don't have hypermobility in their joints um maybe it's hard to understand that some days I'm very able to do rigorous physical activity, you know, perform hard dance pieces lift I used to lift people all the time and and now now I don't do that anymore but um, but yeah I used to be able to do these things and some days I feel like I am invincible still and then some days I'm in a lot of pain and discomfort and kind of feel the the elements of what I deal with and I think, yeah, I just, I hope I, I like to be understood. I think that's a natural human thing, but I, for people to understand that it does look different every day. That
2: is so helpful for people without symptomatic joint hypermobility to understand, right? Because Um, you might cancel going out with a friend to their birthday party one night because it's been a really bad day. And then a week later, you might go to karaoke night with other friends. And that first friend is like, well, how come you could do this and not that? And so much of it depends on where you are that day. But it's also important for people with symptomatic joint hypermobility to understand that and to show themselves grace. And um, adjacent to that, what you said is your second point, um, that, that it's something that you have to take care of. It's not just something that you have to take care of your hyperextension or your hypermobility. It's something that you deserve to have taken care of. So you're absolutely worth investing the time and effort of the, the maintenance that you can do on the good days to help you not feel as bad on the bad days, right? So you're investing in yourself. It's not selfish if you need to take a nap or if you need to cancel a few things. That's smart. And it's investing in your physical health so that you can do more down the line. So I love that those are your three things. Uh, Dr. Gensimer, Courtney, what about you? What what three things do you want people to uh, understand about symptomatic joint hypermobility? So the first thing
1: uh, is really simple and something that I feel like a lot of the community has been pushing, but it's not fully accepted or known yet. Um, it's not rare. Uh, yeah. Symptomatic joint hypermobility, hypermobility disorders are not rare. Some types of the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are exceedingly rare conditions But overall, as a whole, hypermobile EDS, hypermobility spectrum disorders are not rare. Um, And treating them as rare uh, also contributes to the dismissal of symptoms. Doctors saying you can't have that. It's too rare. This is a rare disease. Um, It's not helpful. Uh, It delays people getting accurate diagnosis. um, It impacts their access to resources. And I think it also um, can kind of skew healthcare providers' perspective on being educated about it because if you think it's rare, you think that you don't need to know a lot about it because you won't see it in your practice. So, that would definitely be the first one. Um, the second one is just really um, emphasizing that comorbidities and things that come with symptomatic joint hypermobility extend far beyond joints. Um, you know, the whole body essentially can be affected that can look different for everyone and for a lot of patients their joints are actually not their biggest issue um and so you know, it's, it's hard because it's like, what else do we call these conditions? Right. The like unifying feature is that people have hypermobility, um, but hypermobility isn't always the biggest issue. And so sometimes I worry that when we talk about joint hypermobility and hypermobile conditions, um, it can kind of get lost that, you know, the gastrointestinal tract, the immune system, um, neurological issues, all those other things can be present. Um, And then the third thing I think that I'd really like people to know is that um, uh, a lot of resources can be challenging to find, you know, finding a physician who understands it, finding someone who lives near you who understands it, assembling sort of a team of healthcare providers, but um, having an expert, you know, someone who's maybe published in the space or sees a ton of EDS patients or hypermobile patients isn't really necessary all the time. Um, And that's something I want to emphasize is that if you can find a provider who is open to learning, um, who validates your symptoms, who, you know, understands that you are struggling and isn't dismissive and is willing to learn, that might be the best physician for you. And so something that I often tell patients, I get questions all the time. Like, do you know a doctor near here? Do you know someone near here? Like, who should I see? And of course I know, you know, some great experts off the top of my head. Um, They might have to travel for those, or they might have really long wait lists. And so I always encourage people that if you can find a compassionate physician who's open to learning and listening to you, um, that's someone that you can take a publication like this to, and say, Hey, I know you've been listening to my symptoms you're not really an expert in this but you're willing to help me would you take a look at this and work with me on trying this approach um and so i think just trying to be open i know that it can be hard to see new physicians and go through your medical history and all of those things um but if you can find someone who is willing to listen um, i tend to find that younger physicians are much more open um I've every sort of resident that I've interacted with here at MUSC is curious and interested and wants to learn this stuff. Um, So someone who's young and excited and interested in learning might be kind of the best place for you to go if you
2: can't find um, sort of an expert near you. That's such great advice. And um, that is something that we hear all the time at Bendy Bodies is there's no one near me. Like this is a medical desert. Like how do I, how do I find someone that I need? And we so often say finding someone who is compassionate and as you said, willing to learn and open and validating your symptoms um, is really crucial. I also really appreciate what you said. I think it was your second point uh, that uh, symptomatic joint hypermobility is not rare. And I have had so many of my own clients dismissed when they come in and talk about it. And, and like one of my clients wanted to be scanned for um, a, a few things neckwise, a Chiari malformation, that sort of thing. And the doctor wouldn't even order it. He's like, oh, you don't have that it's so rare. You don't have that, you know, and she has diagnosed with EDS and to be dismissed because as you've said, it's so rare, um, is incredibly frustrating. So changing that mindset, um, will also, as you mentioned, hopefully change how much of it gets taught, um, in schools, how many people seek out to learn more about it. So that's a huge piece of it. Um, Dr. Bluestein, what are the three big things that you want people to know about symptomatic joint hypermobility?
0: I I agree with Victoria. It's like, Picking three things is hard, um, and I'm glad that that uh, Courtney commented about these conditions not being rare. It's it's unfortunate that we tend to think that if something's rare, we're never going to see it so even if something is rare we still should be considering it especially if somebody's not making um, progress with with their treatment but but anyway for my three things the first thing that i want to mention is that improved quality of life is often possible and we don't even need to over medicalize the situation i that is not the goal if i'm working with somebody it's it's doing the least amount of intervention to get the greatest impact and i often tell people that I like to use the 10% rule. So if you get 10% out of five different interventions, now you have 50% improvement. And if you intervene at an earlier time, then you can use usually less um, types of uh, interventions and therapies than if you wait. The longer you wait, first of all, it becomes this tangled web that can be very, very difficult to untangle and, and sort out what caused what. And it's also, you know, you often need to use more aggressive therapies than if you intervene at an earlier time, again, without over-medicalizing. So, so that's my first um, thing that I want to point out that improved quality of life is possible. The second thing is don't doubt yourself just because other people doubt you. Um, I, I also have gaslit myself. And I think this is a common thing. We, we go into the doctor and they dismiss us. And make us feel like badly because we're reporting symptoms that to them don't make sense, um, and so we end up, you know, doubting ourselves. So just because somebody else doubts you doesn't mean that you should or that it's beneficial to doubt yourself. Um, you know, you want to pay attention to your body, try to use a curious mindset and not an anxious mindset. That can be very very helpful. Um, and trying to observe yourself like an outside reporter would and focusing on, on not just awareness, you know, this is EDS awareness month right now, but we really want to focus on action. What are the action items that you can do to uh, help yourself feel better? So when it comes to these articles, part of why I felt this was such an important, uh, these were such important papers to publish is because there are so many things that people can do as Courtney pointed out without their physician. So taking action can make us feel so empowered and so, and so much more hopeful. Than just being told there's nothing that you can do, and then the last point that I wanted to make is that you know especially right now not for not to get too caught up on whether you have a, hyper- a hypermobile EDS or HSD diagnosis or some other diagnosis or, or no diagnosis even um, because they're, again we wanted to make this very inclusive we used symptomatic joint hypermobility these steps can be taken by you know anybody who thinks that this might apply to them. And a lot of these things that we recommend can even be beneficial for people who maybe they don't even have symptomatic joint hypermobility, but they have had pain. They've had chronic pain. And I get people sent to me all the time that, you know, they think that they might have EDS and- And they don't even have generalized joint hypermobility. So it's really important for us to not get too hung up on labels, but instead to focus on symptoms. And as Courtney said, you know, the joint hypermobility and joint related symptoms might not even be the most significant part of the person's picture. So I would try not to get too caught up on the diagnostic labels, but instead really focus on getting treatment for the symptoms that are most greatly impacting your life.
2: I, I cheated because I, i mean, you guys only felt like you had three, but I got nine points out of it. So you know, yay for me, we got, um, several excellent, great takeaways from that. So I really appreciate it. Courtney, what can you tell us about the future of joint hypermobility and related conditions? Yeah.
1: So, uh, most of you probably know that I am, um, continuing to work on research in this space. I did finish my PhD, um, where my studies were focused on the genetics of HEDS, uh, I'm still working on that during my postdoc right now, um, and I've spoken with a lot of other people working in this space. I think in terms of the basic science, we're starting to catch up. Uh, if you look at you know, publications on hypermobile conditions in the last five to 10 years clinically, they've been on an exponential growth. But in terms of genetics and biology and molecular diagnostics and things like that, we're not quite in that growth phase yet, but I think we're just getting into it. I think research is really starting to explode. There's a lot of studies going on with our lab and other labs, uh, things looking for biomarkers, genetic markers, treatment options, um, clinical trials being planned, all sorts of things, um, to manage comorbidities, to find ways to diagnose and to hopefully lead to treatment options. Um, but the other thing I do want to mention is like, while the science is growing and research is going and things are moving in a good direction. Uh, one of the things that I unfortunately also see growing is a lot of the misinformation and the bad science. And, you know, when you have a condition like HSD or HDS, um, this also happens in sort of the MECAFS, um, community or the fibromyalgia community, when you have something that medicine doesn't understand, Unfortunately, there will be healthcare providers who use that as an opportunity to benefit themselves, um, whether it's financially or or other ways. And so they know that patients are desperately looking for answers. And if they can say, "Hey, I can sell you this," or "I can offer this unproven thing," um, patients want answers and they want help, and they kind of jump on board because this person is validating and listening. And I think as we start to improve awareness, it also increases the number of people trying to take advantage of this population, which has become extremely frustrating. But I'm hoping that sort of the, the scientists and physicians and researchers working on these things are going to eventually outweigh that noise, um, which is why it's really important that we do grow the number of publications on like the basic science side of things. And I think we're moving in that direction. I've talked with a lot of different people, um, students and PIs at other labs that have a lot of cool projects that they're planning on doing. And I'm excited to see the papers that will come from those in the next two, three, five, 10 years. Um, I think it's going to be really awesome.
2: Excellent. Well, that is um, that is a, a good hope to have. Um, Victoria, what kind of research or publications would you like to see in this space?
3: Uh yeah. I think everyone has on their mind. You know, what is the crossover in symptomatic joint hypermobility, pots, and muscle activation disorders? I would love to see some explanations as to why, how, um, all of that. Sounds like a, a complicated project to take on, but Hopefully, hopefully we'll get some answers with that. Um, I'd also love to see clinical trials and case studies with specific treatment options related to symptomatic joint hypermobility. It There's very little in regards to specific options. Um, That's something I'd love to jump off of too, in terms of talking
1: about comorbidities and mast cell issues. That's something I'm personally really interested in and i going to be Focusing some of my work on over the next few years um, is kind of trying to understand that mast cell relationship. Um, are, you know, is the connective tissue um, that's abnormal a trigger for mast cells? Or are mast cells contributing to problems in connective tissue? Is it a little bit of both? Is there something else going on? Kind of the chicken or the egg question: what is the relationship going on here? I think that'll give us a lot of answers, not just about the relationship between the two, but Um, a lot of new insight into connective tissue biology and how mast cells work. Uh, Most of the work that's been done on mast cells has been really focused on, you know, true allergies and allergic responses, but mast cells are involved in so many other conditions and um, a lot of different connective tissue problems, including sort of the opposite of EDS and fibrotic conditions and things like that. So um, I'm excited to be working on some of that. And kind of along with the research growing is that hopefully we can publish something right on a relationship, something we find in the lab between mast cells and EDS. And then that study opens up doors for 10 other studies from other labs. And so as we start to publish in these areas, I hope that there is an explosion of additional publications after that.
2: Well, I think there's been an explosion of publications on hypermobility and EDS just within the past five years, like relatively speaking, I feel like it's just starting to be, you know, something that's coming out there. Did you have anything you wanted to add And looking towards the future?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I have been saying lately and not just related to like these conditions, but just science in general is um, no science is better than bad science. Uh, when you see questionable studies um, often in what we call predatory journals. So journals that don't really have like a review process and um, things like that, that are just a little um, questionable. And then people are presenting data that, you know, doesn't even show how they collected it or doesn't show statistics or things are just missing. Um, but to the lay public, they're like, well, this is published. This isn't a paper. And right. so, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. you know, that
1: means it must be true. And that's really frustrating because, um, to the lay community and to the scientific community, it's harmful. Um, if you take a, a bad study on EDS, right. And so I don't even want to call it a study because if it's <laughs> improperly done, it's just like a, a bad thing someone threw together. Um, and then physicians see that. Um, it's more invalidating to the illness. It further pushes that narrative. I mean, if someone can read it, like a a scientist or physician can read it and see right through it and be like, this is terrible science. It's going to further increase that bias of like, well, the science on the disease isn't even good. So like, why would I take it seriously? Um, so it's harmful for patients. It's harmful for the research community. If the people doing the research are doing bad research, then it makes other people not want to be a part of that field of research. Mm-hmm. So it's just this um, difficult cycle. Um, the peer review process is extremely frustrating. Academic research is frustrating and has a lot of things that could be improved. But um, there are reasons for why things work the way they do. And although I know a lot of people are really eager to like read about what we're working on, um, I hope that we can have it published soon. I will say we've done a lot of talks where we've basically shown so much data except for the gene name. Um, We've been really transparent about all the biology we're doing, what types of experiments we're doing. Um, At the end of the day, the genetics that we have found so far will not change anyone's care. It's currently not on a panel. It will take a while for that to happen. Um, If you have a diagnosis already, it's not going to change anything for you. If you get tested and don't have this mutation, your your diagnosis is not going to go away. And so, at the current moment, we have not we don't have a secret treatment, you know, that we're waiting to publish or something. I wish I could say we did, but um, although it's frustrating that things aren't out there, um, nothing that we've done aside from like providing hope and validation, obviously those are very important. But like in terms of changing your medical care, it's not going to happen at this exact moment. Um, so I just like to remind people of that.
0: I'm so glad that you shared all that because I think it's so important for people to understand the differences between high quality, genuine scientific research that is being done properly versus people who throw things out there and, and, and basically, you know, share all kinds of misinformation. And, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right. So, yeah. so, so that's the other thing, obviously we spent a lot of time and energy researching some of these different therapies and, you know, you always have to weigh the risks and the benefits and, but there's people out there who are saying all kinds of things that, you know, offering false hope, I think. And so it's so important to follow the science and whenever possible to really get quality, credible resources. And it's, I think it's, it's just, it's easier to make something sexy. Oh, sorry. If you're like making stuff up or you're not, you know, whereas if you're really sticking to the facts and sticking to your scientific research, that's, that's harder. And it's not, going to necessarily be as sexy. So that doesn't always spread as quickly, but that's why I think it's really important for people to understand this process. And as you were explaining the steps, you kind of went over like the writing the paper so quickly. And to me, it's like, oh my God, writing a paper is so much work and such an incredible amount of effort going into you know, the, the resources specifically, the references, I mean. And, um, so I think it's just incredible what you're doing, what the Norris lab is doing. And, um, and everyone owes you a huge debt of gratitude for, for this, because it's not, uh, it's it's in some ways probably thankless work because it's so much effort
1: (laughs) I'll also throw in like a little plug for the intern program Victoria is a great spokesperson if she wants to say anything (laughs) about being one of our interns but we host it every year we've already picked our interns for the summer but if there's anyone interested in being an intern we will be taking them next summer again I don't know if Victoria wants to like
3: add anything about the intern program I would be happy to. I mean, it it definitely I I've had these moments in my life looking back that have changed the course of my life. And that was definitely a big one. Um yeah, just I I learned so much about science, not only but the disorder and meeting other people with the disorder for the first time. Um and being in a really supportive community and workplace i'm like my my mind has changed about what a workplace can look like based on how it's run there and yeah it, i felt incredibly empowered to learn about the condition on a cellular level <laughs> um and that's that's really intriguing to me and meeting dr bluestein and many other incredible physicians and yeah, I've I can't recommend it enough. And so much so that I am joining the lab full-time <laughs> starting next month. Yay, so I'm moving to Charleston and I'm gonna continue researching with them. And I cannot oh. wait.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. Congratulations. Well, I think the the thoroughness with which everybody, the the three of you and, and Dr. Norris, have put together these articles, this two-part series. Um, and the research that went into it and the the thoughtfulness behind um, choosing for it to be uh, symptomatic joint hypermobility rather than one one diagnosis specifically um, is really helpful for a lot of people. And um, as as Courtney mentioned earlier, it's an opportunity as, as the information gets out there, it's an opportunity for people to take advantage of other people. So we are hopeful that the science will catch up and make this even more widespread so people won't be taken advantage of. Um, this is a great example of something that people can take to their healthcare providers because it is a quality um, quality research that has been put into it and not just sort of thrown off um, in a fly-by-night <laughs> group of people looking to make a big buck.
1: Yeah, and I'll also add, I don't know if we mentioned, but um, healthcare providers can get CME credits through this. Um, so it's a really great way. If you just have any like people in healthcare in your life that you think should learn more about EDS, they probably need some CME credits so you can send this their way. Um, I, I think it would be great for um all sorts of physicians and and PAs and all, all sorts of people to um get this knowledge, even if they're in a specialty where they think they don't see a lot of these patients. Uh, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to digest for both physicians and patients. And it's a helpful tool that you can have around if you need it and, and share yeah. with your patients as well.
2: Yep. And as we've, as we've learned, it is not, this is not rare. So it's good for people to have this information. Um, was there anything else? I feel, I feel more hopeful about hypermobility and about uh, people being able to take um, autonomy and these, these steps that you guys have given us. Was there anything else that you wanted to add and um, where can people learn more about you? Victoria, I'm going to start with you.
0: Yeah,
3: I, I. I feel incredibly more hopeful after being a part of this paper and seeing, I think, reflecting on my own experience, whenever I've felt my worst physically, it was really, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it can be related to feeling out of options or out of hope or not being listened to. And I hope that this paper shows you that there, the list is long, actually, of things that can help. It, I'm shocked. I have a whole new list of things to pull from and to try if I'm feeling like that. And I feel in, inspired to know that there are physicians out there like Dr. and that are aware of the multisystemic nature of this, but also like that patients often feel gaslit and um, have medical trauma and the whole experience of symptomatic joint hypermobility, not just the medical experience, so yeah, I I think that taking power over your own medical treatment is is the biggest takeaway of hope for me. Nice. And where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram at genetically bendy. Um, yeah, that's where I I'm trying to spread some information, just like these these lovely women on the on the call with me.
2: <laughs> Excellent. That's great. And Dr. Gensimer, Courtney, what about you?
3: Yeah, I would say. One final note is just
1: to have an open mind can be really important. I think sometimes patients can get a little burnt out and, you know, tried physical therapy for years. Nothing's getting better, Um, but having an open mind to working with new providers, Um, maybe trying that new physical therapist that people are saying they really like in your local EDS support group, even if you've had a bad experience in the past, um, being open to trying maybe a medication that you don't think is going to work because no other pain med has worked for you. Um, but saying, okay, everyone's talking about low dose naltrexone. Like, let me, let me give it a, a shot. Maybe it'll work for me. Um, it can be really easy to get in that mindset of like, nothing's working, nothing's helping, but I've definitely found things that maybe didn't work in the past and work for me much better. Now I used to have like a lot of trouble walking long distances. And now the best way that I feel good is going for regular walks. Um, And it's a great opportunity to spend time with my dog. Um, I actually walk up the steps to lab every day now, which is crazy because a few years ago, I never would have thought that I could do that. I just wouldn't have even tried. Um, So just having an open mind about things. Um, You know, that doesn't mean like doing ridiculous things that are going to be damaging to your body, but having an open mind about new resources and things that can be helpful um, or things that you might read in this paper. um, Maybe stop eating that leftover food.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The things you learn when you're working with other people who have really interesting little tidbits of expert information. And where can people find you, Courtney? Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and
1: TikTok um, at Science. C-O-R-T does science. Um, Not not as active on TikTok, but um, definitely Instagram and Twitter. Um, And I also have a subscriber channel on um, Instagram that if you want to subscribe, I can't possibly interact with everyone who messages me, but I do make anyone who's a subscriber a priority and host like uh, subscriber group chats and things like that to like, allow people who follow me to connect with each other, which is really cool. And I've seen some friendships online kind of come from that, which is awesome.
0: That's fantastic. And Dr. Bluestein, what about you? I love what Courtney just said about keeping an open mind. If I'm seeing a new patient and oftentimes maybe they will have tried low dose naltrexone, but then when we start to actually really get into the details about that or some other medication, oftentimes it's how they did it. And if they have an open mind and are willing to try it again, I explain to them Well, but you did it for only a month or once you got to the peak dose, you pretty much stopped. So we really want to try this again. And this is why we need to try this in a different way. And if they have an open mind and we can use that placebo effect that Courtney talked about earlier, I'm sorry, Victoria talked about the uh, placebo effect that can really be beneficial. So it is that that open mindset is really, really important for having a better chance at having a good outcome with putting together a comprehensive um, treatment plan. So I'm really, really excited about about this um, two-part article. I'm so grateful to Victoria and Courtney for just their incredible work on this. It's writing an article is, is so much work. Um, I know, Jen, I've told you I'm never writing another article ever again after I wrote whatever I wrote before this. <laughs> and then you're like, you're writing another article. I said, well, it's different though, because Victoria is going to be first author and and she just did a phenomenal job making it easier for for the rest of us who are participating on the team. And so I'm just... I just want to say thank you to them for making this happen because I think it is a very important two-part series for people to have access to. As As Courtney said, it's it's written in a way such that patients and healthcare professionals both can benefit, and people can find me at um, Instagram twitter facebook linkedin all at hypermobilitymd i think i'm also on pinterest um oh and i and i am on tiktok um kyle manages the tiktok i never touch it so i don't i don't know what happens over there but um but i am on a lot of platforms and then hypermobilitymd.com or bendybodies.org are the best places to uh reach me online and learn more about the podcast of course And learn more about these complex conditions that can present in such a wide variety of ways. So the saying, if you've seen one EDS patient, you've seen one EDS patient, is very, very true. So it's important not to compare and to recognize the differences. And I know Victoria had pointed that out earlier, but I just wanted to to reiterate that one last time.
2: Absolutely. And thank you for that. So um, we will also have how to get in contact with everybody in the show notes as well. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And our guests today have been Victoria Dayler Courtney Gensimer, and our very own Dr. Linda Bluestein talking about hope for hypermobility.
0: Uh, Victoria, Courtney, and Dr. Bluestein, thank you so much for being here today. If you found this helpful, follow the Bendy Bodies podcast to avoid missing future episodes. Please leave a review and share the podcast so more people know about Bendy Bodies and joint hypermobility. Screenshot this episode, tagging us in your story so we can connect. Our website is www.bendybodies.org and follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So please tag us using hashtag bendybuddy. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The information shared is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for any medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.